Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides and Marissa DiNatale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hi, Mark. You notice I've got Long this down now, see. this introduction. I go right, like Walter Cronkite, you know? What did he What did he say when he signed, signed off every night? Oh, come on. You guys don't good night remember? And good luck or something like that? No. <laughs> no, shoot. I don't and, remember and that's, either. And that's the that's way, somebody the way else. it is. Yeah, that's the way it is. So I, I think I've got a, gotten this down, uh, this introduction. Um, Are you comparing yourself to Walter Cronkite? Did I just hear that? Ooh. Yeah, it does wow. sound a little... Wow. That's like a little humility. You know, that's doesn't good. It? That's good. <laughs> Aim high. Aim high. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, I... My, you know, my wife is, has this saying, and I've been trying to figure out a way to introduce it into the podcast. Uh, I just haven't been able to figure it out. So I'm just going to do it. Just say it. Yeah. yeah just say it. And I'm going to give her credit for it. It's a Yogi Berra kind of comment. It's like, I, I don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but I could be right. I could be right. <laughs> that, that is the greatest <laughs> line great. of all time. You know? She made that up, or she made that up. She, well, we, you know, it's funny because uh, I don't really read the popular press. I just don't have time to do that. I mean, I I read articles around the economy and policy and politics, but I you know I don't read broadly. And so her job every night is to be like twitter for me x you know to kind of summarize all, all the news He's in charge of pop culture and, and the first thing i ask when she says something to me is okay where did you read that because that's key to me you know what's the source and then i start peppering her with questions it's really unfair because she's doing me a service and i'm like you know berating her and then that's where these th that line came from I, I have no idea what i'm talking about but i could be right i could be right so I thought, that, I thought that was very good. Very good. Hey, I just wanted, we've got a great podcast. We've got a, a great guest, Martin Fleming, and uh, we're going to go to him uh, talk to talk about artificial intelligence, AI. So, and that was a pretty long conversation. So I don't want to take too much time here, but I do want to play the statistics game. And I do want to make a couple of advertisements. Uh, advertisement number one uh, is... What is advertisement number one? Oh, we have a conference. We have two conferences, one in Chicago and one in Dallas. Did you guys, I think the Chicago conference is the It's 12th? Tuesday. Tuesday the 12th. And the conference in Dallas is the, the following 27th, I believe. You know, something like that. You guys correct me. If oh, I'm no. Wrong. Yeah. 26th? Oh. No, I think it's. I think it's the 27th. Don't, don't, there you go. I, I, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I could be right. I could be right. I could be right. 26 is a day in September. Yes, it, it is. Starts two. Yeah, I think it is. 27. 27. It is a 27. 27. It is a 27. Okay. And um, please, uh, please join us. Uh, those will be good. All three of us will be at, will you be at all, uh, both conferences, Marissa, or just the one in just Chicago? Just Chicago next week. Yeah. And Adam's going to be, Taking That's right. place in Dallas. Okay. But Chris and I were we're at both conferences, right? Yes. So, yeah. Okay. So that's advertisement number one. Advertisement number two. We have this survey of business confidence. You know, we've been conducting this weekly uh uh for 20 years, back to 2003. I can remember when I put the questions together. There's a bunch of questions around hiring, investment, broad questions about 
how business is performing today, how it's going to perform in the future, financial conditions, so forth and so on. It's a very valuable survey and we need participants. Uh, Chris, how did, how can people participate if they want to? What's the best way for them to do that if they wanted to participate? Yeah, they can go to economy.com. They should see a link there or at, I believe it's economy.com slash SBC. We'll take okay. you there directly. Survey business com, uh, confidence, SBC. Yeah, economy.com. But economy.com, you should. I think it's there. Yeah. But okay. Uh, so please, uh, we'd really love for you to be, begin to become a participant in that survey. Very valuable, timely information. You know, we do the survey, like the survey we're doing this week will be published on next Monday. So you get, you know, the results. And I find them very valuable because there's, it's a, so timely. And, and I, and I track that and write that release every every week i've been doing that for for you know 20 plus years so you know that's uh, very important um also we had a webinar this is not now we're out, outside the ab, a, advertisements but just we had this webinar yesterday the three of us on the us macro outlook and here's my question to each of you and i'll begin with you chris cool. uh yeah of, of all the things that we discussed in that webinar was there anything that surprised you uh, th that you learned uh, that you didn't know before, or you go, oh, that's interesting. That was insightful. Like anything I, particularly like what I said, anything, did I say anything that was insightful to you that you learned from, from the conversation? Mark, you're always insightful, but Marissa yeah. uh, allowed me with this great, oh, this very interesting set of charts on China. Yeah. The trade linkages, uh, decoupling that was going on. So I'd, I'd highly recommend it just for the, for the chart itself. Um, mind blowing. You're talking about the, uh, the starburst chart that, yes. had, that uh, shows linkages across industries and countries over time. That one. Yes. 9 yeah. million products. Is that, was that it? Marcella? Yeah. And, and I did not make that chart to be clear. That chart was made by two of Harry. our colleagues Harry Murphy Cruz and uh, Steve Cochran, the, the team in Asia Pack, and it's from a great paper that they wrote about decoupling between the U.S. and China. Um, yeah, that was. I think my section also wowed me. I, that I, that's what I learned the Ooh. most about too. Yeah, I think the <laughs> I think the China the China discussion and sort of the history of decoupling. You know, I. I had to dig into it in order to to present that part, and it was very interesting. Yeah, I was actually I was going to say the same thing. I thought that was the very interesting part of the conversation. Uh, so, uh, and, and that webinar we taped that I believe, so folks can can go take take a gander. I think you'll find that of uh, of uh, some interest and some value. Okay, let's play the uh, statistics game before we move on to our conversation with Martin. Uh, the game is we each put forward a statistic. Uh, the rest of the group tries to figure that figure that out through questions, deductive reasoning, and clues. And the best um, uh, statistic is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately, not so hard that we never get it. And is apropos to the topic at hand or related to recent data data releases. Um, so, uh, and this was a tough week, right? Because it was short. We had Labor Day. And also, kind of, a, uh, the, the kind of this week is a, a dry on a lot of statistics. But um, uh, uh, and I, I guess I'm apologizing for my statistic already. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> Marissa, you know, tradition has it. We go with you first. What's your statistic? Three and a half percent. Oh my gosh! I know. No way. No way. No. It can't. But it's possibly be. 
It's my apropos. Statistic. Oh, I can't believe oh, it. Gosh. Okay. Well, oh, gosh. Well, come on. I, I just, this is going to kill me if this is the case. Okay. Three and a half. Per, there's a lot of three and a half percents, though. Okay. Three well, and a half percent. Right Are there the that came out this week? I don't know. It's the year over year growth, correct? No, no. Oh, nope. okay, okay. Then, okay, then I don't. I'm not gonna. My statistic is also three and a half percent. Interesting. No okay. No line. Okay, so three and a half percent is. So Chris knows what it is. Yeah. Oh, he knows. But go ahead, Mark. You want to announce? It? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the annualized, oh, quarterly no. annualized growth through output per hour, right? Uh, okay. That's right. Okay. No, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Uh, I bow to you. Go ahead. Oh, you know? I, I just gave it output per hour. Productivity growth. Uh, yeah, it's annualized, annualized productivity growth in the second quarter. Oh, that's so boring. I know, but it went with the topic um, at hand. That's perfectly. true. That's true. That's a good point. That's why that's I picked it. And so what is what did you so what is the number? Wasn't exactly? much else interesting to pick. Um, so it's it's productivity growth in the second quarter. This is a revised figure. So this had already been released. So this is the revision to the productivity number. Three and a half percent is the fastest annualized productivity growth that we've seen since coming right out of the pandemic in 2020. And it's well higher than what exists kind of prevailing productivity growth prior to the pandemic. Now, this can be volatile from quarter to quarter. So I'm, I don't want to make too much of it. Productivity growth on a year over year basis is up 1.3%, which is, you know, pretty, pretty weak, but pretty kind of in line with what we've been seeing the last several years. One of the interesting aspects of this is that part of the reason productivity growth is so high is because hours worked fell quite, quite a bit, right? Because this is output per worker hour. And we've seen from the BLS average weekly hour numbers that the average work week has been trending lower now for quite some time. It's it's pretty low. So this partially is reflecting, you know, the the numerator, which is hours, and that has been contracting. That's a good one. Yeah. I, I think and I looked at that carefully that uh th that just reestablishes kind of the what we consider to be the underlying trend rate of growth of productivity, about about one and a half percent per annum. And that that's what it has been since the pandemic hit, if you go back to the you know Q4 2019 or Q1 2020. So uh, it had been slumping a little bit, I think, and now it's come right back up to about one and a half percent. That's a good statistic. Yeah. Particularly, you're right, in the context of the conversation we're going to have about AI, because that is going to be key to future productivity growth. Chris, what's your statistic? All right. I went back to the vault for this one. Mm. Okay. $3.69. Is that the cop price of copper? You got it. You oh got wow. It. wow! Yeah, yeah. Yep. I you think redeemed the vault, yourself. The vault helped me out there when you said the vault. Yeah, yeah. So this is your statistic. It's right. my statistic. We go back all the way back to the ago. yeah. Yeah, start of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Right. So why'd you Watch pick copper. That? Why'd you pick that? So three sixty. It's it's actually down from the peak around a year or so ago. It was closer to four and a half bucks. So it does show moderating, but it's still above. The level that we had in 2019, which was just under three dollars, and so I wanted to know from you. I, I picked because mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you a question. What do you think is yeah. the uh, is the break even, or what's the uh, the threshold uh, for recession issues? Yeah, I think we were using um, 
I think we were at kind of $2 for recession. You know, three was kind of the equilibrium price pre-pandemic. Anything over four was considered to be boom. You know, and right. maybe you said this and I missed it, but the, you know, the context is Dr. Copper. Copper is a very sensitive price to global demand and supply. And when you get, you know, the economy strong, the economy strong, there's a lot of demand for copper price goes up. And so if you're over four bucks, you're booming. Three bucks was kind of typical. Two bucks is, it was recession. I, I think I'd shift that up by a dollar. You know, I, I think the recession would be below three, kind of typical around four, above five is boom-like. So it feels like we're on the soft side of, you know, kind of typical. And the reason why it's up about, about a buck, I think it's, it's supply and demand. Uh, I think demand's been juiced a little bit by green. Yeah. Yeah. Electrification investment. There's a lot of demand for it, and I think that the supply has been a little bit more limited. You know, it's a, a lot of it comes from Chile, and there's some you know uh, I think production issues and things like that. So I'd say the my my sense is correct me if you or tell me if you you have a different view. But my sense is the kind of the break e, what you said called the break even price kind of consistent with a typical economy would be around you know four bucks for 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 copper, and we're just south of that right now. Does that sound about right? What do you think? Yeah, and that, I yeah. think that's reasonable. Yeah, that that the goalpost yeah. certainly has been raised, though. It I has been raised. The, yeah, that's the the main point. Yeah. So right, and and I think commodities in general, although oil has picked up recently, most recently, but commodity prices in general are a little depressed, somewhat depressed, and I think that goes back to China. You know, our conversation around China. China's economy has been weak, and they're obviously sucked down a lot of commodities, and if they're not buying a lot of commodities, <clears throat> that means prices are going to be soft as well. So I think that. The copper price reflects that. Yeah. Okay. Back to my statistic. It, it, so uncanny. Three point five percent year over year. Came out this week. It did indeed. Government statistic. Nope. Oh. Okay. That's the big hint. I, I'll give you another hint if you if you need it. Housing market related. Uh. Nope. Auto no. market related. Uh, I'm saying going to say no because at first blush not. Although there is information in this data that goes to the housing market and the auto market. That's a big hint, by the way. It's an in, oh, it's not an interest rate. You said it's a growth rate. It's a year over year growth rate through through. Here's another hint. August. Yeah. Oh. Just came out. It's not a government statistic. It is a Moody's statistic. Oh, come on. Chris, I'm laying the statistic at your feet. A Moody said uh, it's not it's not survey of business confidence related. No, no, no. Uh, well, uh, that would have been clever to work. It would have been clever, actually. It would have been clever. Um, uh, not that clever. Moody's statistic. Moody's Moody's meaning our group, us, economics, or something outside of us. Uh. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of, it's outside of us. Yeah. All right, you guys give? No, you I don't give. We, uh, okay. Uh let me not. give you one more uh, Yeah, I'm trying to one more hint. Else, what other hint that won't give it completely away? It, it we also do this in conjunction with another firm. Oh, is it is it Equifax? <laughs> it's Equifax. Is it, is it so it's credit? Yeah, it's year over year growth. Growth and credit outstanding. Total household debt outstanding. Debt outstanding. Okay. Total shoot and match. Everything. Got it. 
uh, car auto. That's why I said auto. Ah, okay. Residential okay. mortgage, student loans, bank cards, personal loans, finance, yeah. the whole shooting match. 16 point, I'm making this up, roughly speaking, $16.4 trillion in household debt outstanding, up 3.5% year over year. That's that's news because that's actually pretty slow growth. We're seeing a very significant slowing in the growth in household debt and in, in liabilities, particularly that's since including the, mortgage, though, right? That's that is including mortgage, but every yeah. every ask, every product line, the growth rates are down. They're down. In, they're down for consumer finance. They're down for bank card. They're down for auto. They're down for first mortgage. They're down for home equity. They're slowing. Slowing, yeah. yeah. The growth rates are down. Yeah, yeah. The, right. Yeah. right. Student loans, I, maybe you know more than I, it's actually declining. I don't know if that's related to debt forgiveness. We're starting to see some impact from you know some of the debt forgiveness is showing up in the data or maybe some reporting issues. But 3.5% is, you know, that's income growth. So that, that means the household debt is not adding to the debt load, you know, at this point. It, it was, it, it had been 2021, 2022 coming into this year, consumers, households were borrowing aggressively. So big increases in uh, debt outstanding. But now, you know, it's pretty much back to kind of what you consider to be typical, which I view as another positive sign. I, I think and maybe it's somewhat, it's demand and supply. This, this you know, demand in the sense that you don't need the credit because wage growth is now stronger than uh, than inflation therefore people's real wages purchasing power are rising so they don't need to borrow that's a that would be a good interpretation a more a more uh, a vexed interpretation is will supply particularly since the March banking crisis the lenders have tightened up standards and so therefore they're just not extending out as much credit but either way household debt loads are no longer getting heavier. And I do expect that, you know, if this continues, and I would expect it to continue, that credit quality, meaning delinquencies, should start to uh, moderate, uh, you know, here in the next six, 12 months, something like that. What do you think, Chris? You you follow that data very carefully. Just, what do you think of my interpretation of the data? Yeah, I'm a little bit more- I uh, knew you would be. Yeah. Concerned, right? The ball, yeah. the, uh, the income earners at 3.5% might not might be a very different group than the borrowers at 3.5%, right? True, so, true. So true. I think you need to be a little careful in terms of- Looking at the aggregates. Although I will say, I'm going to throw one of your charts back at you. You got this great chart showing wage growth by income group relative to inflation, and wage growth relative is up across all income groups, particularly for low income groups, low wage groups, right? So, yep, that's true. Yep. yep. Well, very good. Um, <clears throat> that was a great discussion. I think um, at this point, you guys got have anything else you want to say before I bring in Martin Martin Fleming to talk about AI? You guys good? No, I want to hear about AI. Let's, let's uh, talk about AI. So let's bring in Martin Fleming. And let me bring Martin Fleming into the conversation. Hey, Martin, how are you? I'm fine, Mark. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm very happy to have you on Inside Economics. Uh, you know, it's been uh, been trying to get you on for a while. You've been very elusive. I don't know. What's that all about? Well, I'm pleased to be with you, nonetheless, <laughs> despite the elusiveness. It's very good. You know, we've known each other, I don't know, for how many years. Uh, we're on the Council of, I think it's called the Conference of Business Economists. Conference of Business Economists. Doesn't have much of a public uh, presence. My wife calls it the mystery organization, but uh, it's, a, <laughs> it, it's really 50 chief economists who meet three times a year, uh, and it's 
quite useful to engage with uh, with our colleagues, I find, and I'm sure you do as well. Absolutely. And I think you joined when you were chief economist of IBM, I believe. I was, right? yes. I yeah. spent 10 years as chief economist and chief analytics officer at IBM uh, and left in the middle of the pandemic uh, to uh, pursue a career in software and research. Right. And and now, I mean, you've got a full plate. I mean, you're at the Productivity Institute. You're a fellow there and you're the, and we got, we've got to explore this a little bit. You're the chief revenue scientist for Verisent, which is a software company, I think a Canadian software company, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to, you, you want to just describe a little bit about your, uh, your uh, position at the Productivity Institute and also uh, what you're doing with Verisent? Sure. So Productivity Institute first. Uh, as the name suggests, uh, the UK government uh, has funded a research institute to focus on the issue of productivity, which is, as as I'm sure uh, all of the listeners will know, uh, is suffering uh, in the UK. Um, so there's been a very uh, robust uh, research effort underway. But for me, like many researchers, I have a portfolio of projects that I'm engaged in, some of which through the Productivity Institute. I also spend time uh, with the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is the BEA, which is part of the Commerce Department that estimates the GDP and the national income and product accounts focused on software prices and uh, um, data center investment. And at the MIT IBM lab, which is the focus on artificial intelligence. Um, that bleeds over into my role at Verisent, which is the more practical application. Verisent is a sales performance management firm. It turns out that sellers generate a great deal of data, which is, of course, the scarce resource uh, in all of this. And the need to be able to, number one, pay sellers through relatively complex sales plans in a timely and accurate way. Uh, turns out to be critically important if you wanna keep sellers happy. And number two, to be able to structure sales territories and quotas uh, in a way that allows for us to be able to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to predict and optimize uh, both the territories, their quotas and the account, their account potential. So it's one, business process where the new technology is being rapidly and quickly deployed to help sales leaders and senior business leaders uh, be able to generate greater return from their sales investment. Hmm. And you said that Moody's, I didn't know this, Moody's is a is a client of Verisent? Sure. Yeah, yeah there, there are a large number of salespeople uh, who have relationships in turn with your clients mm -hmm. uh, who uh, we provide the support both for their uh, sales planning uh, and territory and quota management, uh, as well as um, for uh, for their, their incentive compensation. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be uh, your client. Uh, uh, you know. And we are pleased to have you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Moody's is a good client. Hey, and you've written a book too. Uh, I have. Uh, you wanted to give us a sense of the book? Sure. So- um, the book is called Breakthrough, A Growth Revolution, and it focuses on industrial revolution. Uh, I go through and define quite carefully and tell the history and the story around 
three industrial revolutions that have now been completed and the fourth industrial revolution where we are currently working our way through and develop the economics of industrial revolution. You know, as economists, we oftentimes tend to think of growth as an unending long-term trend upward. Mm. Uh, but in fact, when we look at the uh, history, find out that it's there are, there are quite significant variations in long-term growth responding to uh, a variety of economic trends uh, around technology, uh, around the uh, adoption and diffusion of the technology, uh, the um, the uh, transformation and migration of business models, uh, the uh, transformation of the labor market, worker skills, and workers' interest and ability to adjust, and the role that government policy plays across each of the industrial revolutions. Um, so it it I it's a, I believe a helpful guide for understanding where we are at a point in time and how um, both business and public policy uh, is responding to existing uh, conditions. Well, this brings us to the topic at hand, uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and you you, uh, are uniquely positioned to kind of help us try to understand this this, uh, new technology and what it means for the economy and and more broadly. Uh, You know, there's a lot of angst around this. And, you know, it feels like a lot of hope you know, a lot of optimism, but also a lot of hand wringing and a lot of angst. So I'm hoping we can kind of uh, dig through that. Uh, I thought we could start though, kind of with the basics and just defining AI. And, and let me just preface this by saying, I just, and I'm curious what you think of this. I think I've been doing AI for a long time. You know, I, you know, my first, my uh, project, when I uh, uh, first started uh, with my brother and a good friend, the uh, uh, company that, Ultimately, we sold to Moody's. The first project was with this uh, bank, uh, Shawmut Bank in uh, in New England. I, Chris, Mercer, have I told this story before? I don't. I don't. You, you don't I recall don't it? Think okay, I've so heard okay, it. let no. me let me just tell the story real quick. And I want to want Martin to you tell me if I if I've been doing AI or not. It, the 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 back then this was in the early nineties. The uh, interstate banking was just starting, and banks were uh, quickly moving outside of their their footprint and acquiring other banks to acquire though, you needed to get permission uh, from the federal reserve. And one of the criteria the fed used was uh, around discrimination. Were you discriminating in your lending, particularly mortgage lending? And they had this model uh, that they had developed to identify if a bank was discriminating or not. I won't go into details there, but anyway, the bank asked, could I take a look at what the fed fed had done? And I used a neural net at the time to uh, help with that modeling because the modeling was very complex. I, I wanted to uh, see if there was, uh, you know, uh, different interaction terms and nonlinearities, things that could not be picked up by, well, if you didn't have that kind of, of a capability, it would be very difficult to pick that up. And in fact, I did. And I found that, you know, uh, after you controlled for some of these other relationships that the neural net discovered that uh, hard to conclude one way or the other whether the bank was discriminating or not. At the end of the day, the Fed said they were, they couldn't acquire and they were acquired. So, you know, they, they lost that battle, but I learned about, you know, neural nets at that point. Is that, was that AI? 
Yeah, absolutely. So neural nets are at the heart of deep learning and artificial intelligence. And what you were doing was predicting whether or not the bank was discriminating or whether the bank was discriminating or not discriminating. And it's the prediction that's at the heart of artificial intelligence. Hmm. The simplest example that we all encounter, I'm sure every day, is when you're trying to type a text on your phone and your phone suggests the word that you're trying to type, that's a small machine learning algorithm in your phone that's predicting the word you're trying to type. It's just like when you get on Netflix and Netflix make a re makes a recommendation and predicts what video you might like to see. That's artificial intelligence. In fact, Netflix has a substantial team focused on artificial intelligence. And they obviously at this point have a huge amount of data. So that, that simple idea of prediction is really at the heart of artificial intelligence. Now, recently, over the past um, eight, nine, 10 months, large language models have gotten a lot of attention. And that's really what has spurned all, all of the activity. Uh, and we think of that those large language models as part of generative AI. So I'm going to distinguish between generative AI and classical AI as you were as you were applying it in the financial services context. So generative AI um, number one is uh, very has a, a lot a large set of applications. Think of question and answers, uh, customer operations. You know we all dial into call centers with questions. And we ask the same question in different ways. Uh, and it's important for the call center to be able to give an accurate and precise answer, some cases for legal and medical reasons, but for, for customer relations as well. So the ability of uh, natural language processing and large language models to take all the variety of the same question and give exactly the precise answer is very important. And it and it's highly productive because it helps those who are working in the call center to be able to provide better service uh, to, the, to the client who has the question. We're finding, of course, large language models uh, are very important in software engineering, uh, be able to write code more efficiently, and the productivity of software developers uh, is extremely important. Um, particularly um, as we continue to expand uh, these capabilities. And we've seen a lot of early applications in marketing and sales, being able to write um, pieces, both for uh, marketing purposes, but also just for, for emails to be able to uh, answer questions and be more efficient in responding to emails. Sounds the like more Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say the more classical AI um, and we talked, we spoke earlier about Verisent would be a, a great example of more classical AI, um, where uh, we have a large body of data and we want to help our clients be able to make decisions quicker and more effectively uh, to be able to manage their, uh, their, their sales, their sales forces so that the sellers can earn more income, be more productive, sales leaders can be more effective, and overall, a more profitable revenue can be generated uh, by the organization as a whole. Um, but a really, a really fascinating illustration 
uh, is a company called Freewire. Freewire is based in uh, Northern California, Silicon Valley. It's, mm -hmm. it's an electronic vehicle charging station company. Turns out for charging stations for EVs, finding the right locations is a big problem. And they've developed a, a set of algorithms, artificial intelligence algorithms, to identify the locations which optimize the ability of uh, drivers, whether it's cars or trucks or SUVs, to be able to recharge um, in a timely way. The interesting aspect is many of these locations are gas stations. They're, uh, they're folks, maybe chains, chains of franchisees own 15 gas stations, the owners of which have no idea about artificial intelligence, have no idea of the, of the science behind it. But what they've come to realize is that if they follow the recommendation of FreeWire, they generate an enormous amount of cash flow and they improve the profitability of their business by using the application. So it's a great illustration of the science being in the background, but delivering the business benefits to folks who have no, no familiarity, no training in mathematics or data science. Hmm. Well, so in some sense, AI has been with us for quite some time. Oh, I mean, sure. I, I was doing some variation on the theme, you know, in a very crude way because of the computing power and the data availability was not nearly what we have today back in the yes. early 90s. Absolutely. still kind of sort of in the same species as what the AIs exist today. Yeah. But it seems like it's come out of nowhere. I mean, it feels like, you know, you know, obviously uh, uh, everyone's talking about it in the context of, well, you know, our everyday lives, the job market, you know, what it means for uh, cybersecurity and, uh, and, and also just looking at what's happening to stock prices And that. Is that because of, chat gpt the fact that it just all of a sudden became a, a tool that everyone could use i mean what what's what's behind this all of a well, sudden that, out of yeah, nowhere, seemingly that, out of at least for me seemingly out of nowhere it, it, it has come to the fore sure no that's certainly that's certainly that was certainly a significant mm -hmm. event uh gaining public attention but the reason why chat gpt could do what they have done were the constraints that were previously faced by these applications around the compute capability and compute power and the availability of data all of a sudden became much less constraining. Mm. Um, the uh, One of the uh, early uh, applications, in fact, at the, uh, the MIT IBM lab, we've written a case study uh, around the use of AI with a European grocer. Um, grocers, of course, have significant supply chain issues. As consumers, we don't want to go into a grocery store and find out that the product we're looking for is not available. The grocer doesn't want to have the product not available because of lost sales. But it turns out that with a, a tremendous number of SKs, SKUs in a grocery store and a large number of grocery stores and store locations for most chains, it's, it requires a tremendous amount of computing to be able to solve that problem. That computing constraint still exists to a great extent, but it's, but it's much more readily available, number one, with the advent of 
uh, Amazon Web Services, the Amazon Cloud, the Microsoft Cloud, the Google Cloud. So these public clouds uh, have allowed for these applications to be able to be deployed at quite significant scale. And then as part of that, NVIDIA, of course, is getting a great deal of attention mm -hmm. these days because of the availability of graphical processing units, which started off in gaming, but are very important for solving the kind of problem that you were originally outlining because it's all about linear algebra, right? You were doing linear algebra to solve your neural network model. Um, and it turns out that uh, the more uh, common CPUs, the Intel type product, is not very good at doing that at speed. Uh, and the graphical processing units that NVIDIA has gotten so much attention around and the other uh, semiconductor companies are now trying to catch up to has been very important. And then, and then in addition to compute is the availability of data. Yeah. So now with the advent of the web, you can go out and scrape websites uh, and amass enormous amounts of data. Now, there are problems in doing that, which we can talk about, but uh, the, the data constraint is somewhat less in the generative AI space uh, because of the availability of so much data. So just to summarize, what you're saying is this kind of exploded onto the scene because a, a bunch of stuff came together. You know, One, we had this cloud computing that gives us enormous uh, computing power. And then we get uh, the, uh, the the processors, the, uh, you mentioned NVIDIA is the, yep. the, the, uh, the poster child for that, that allow for the, the computations. And, and then third, data, the, mm -hmm. the explosion of the VL. So you bring all these three ingredients together and, and that allows to, for AI to take off. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I got a statistic for you. I got a question for you. How many days did it take for chat GPT to get a hundred million users? Uh, I'm probably not going to get the precise answer, but it, um, I seem to recall it was 30. Okay. Chris, you, Marissa, you want to take a, a, a stab at that? How many days did it take for chat GPT? And chat GPT was introduced in November of 2022. Right. Yeah, not, let's, not go with the, <clears throat> let's go with a week. Uh, seven days. Okay. Yeah. Well, do you mean seven or five? Five work days or seven? So let's go with seven. Seven. It was available <laughs> on the weekend. So yeah. it's available on the weekend. Okay. Seven. Okay. Marissa? I'll go right down the middle. Two weeks. Two days. Two weeks. Two days. Okay. Two days. 14 days. It was the that's answer. the correct answer is the two days. Correct answer is two days. Guess oh guess, <laughs> just to give context. Wow. How many days did it take TikTok to get to hundred million users? Hmm. In the context of two, now you got two days. Now, now what is it? Yeah, I, I would say a year. Nine. Nine, Nine days. days. <laughs> Nine days. Okay, one more. I, I, I've got, I keep going, but I'll do one more. Uh, <laughs> Instagram. Instagram. How many days did it take? Instagram. Well, since both of my previous answers have been way too long. I'll have to say three months. 30 days. 30 days. Okay. Wow. Two days, two days. I mean, it gives you a sense of how, you know, amazing that is. So, uh, yeah, just explosive. Okay. So let's uh, now turn to, you know, what does it mean? Because this is an, a, a podcast about the economy. My mind immediately goes to, and this goes to your, your position at the Productivity Institute. What does it mean for productivity growth? Uh, and, 
you know, here you've got sort of countervailing narratives. You got, you got one narrative saying, okay, you know, productivity growth, we need it. Uh, productivity growth has been under a lot of pressure. You mentioned in the UK, it's been basically non-existent. Here in the US, it's been better, but it's still slow relative to historical norms. And we need these kind of new technologies like AI to come on to help uh, support productivity growth, uh, particularly in the context of a slowing growth in the labor force, you know, the, the aging of the population. And if, we're, if we have fewer people working, if we're going to produce the same amount, we need them to be able to produce more productively. So I say, bring it on. You know, we need the AI. And then the other narrative is just the opposite. Oh, you know, this is this is going to wipe out so many jobs. It's going to be dystopic. You know, we're going to have unemployed people all over the place. In fact, one more story. I was on, and I'm going to brag just a little bit. I, I guess I'm bragging. I was on a panel with Mark Cuban. Did I tell you this story, guys, before? No. You don't remember any of my stories anyway. I could have told you five <laughs> times. Mark, they, Martin, they don't remember any any of my good stories. I was on a panel with uh, Mark Cuban. It could have been 10 years ago. And he has uh, been investing aggressively in AI companies. I don't know if he still is, but he was at the time. Uh, and he was saying how dystopic this was going to be that, you know, basically Zandy, you're an idiot. You know, the problem isn't going to be low unemployment. It's going to be mass unemployment all over the place. So you got smart people saying both these things, Martin, what do you say? What's, what's, what does this mean for, you know, underlying productivity growth? Yeah. So, so let's, Let's talk about the productivity issue first and then the implications for the labor market. So I think having a little bit of background, it will help the labor market discussion. Okay. Um, and this is really the topic that I address in my book, Breakthrough, A Growth Revolution. What we see in each of the industrial revolutions are really four common uh, events or characteristics that that result in success. So if the fourth industrial revolution is going to yield the uh, productivity, the economic growth, uh, and, and perhaps a more uh, a slightly more even distribution of income and wealth, there are certain criteria that I assert uh, have to uh, be, uh, be addressed. First is, of course, the deployment of the technology. So today, Despite all of the promise and hope of artificial intelligence, its use is largely limited to uh, a, the software sector, if you will, call it the technology sector. Uh, I, 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 when I say the software sector, I would include firms like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, uh, even though they're both on the, the uh, data center and software side, but a, a large number of software firms who are building and beginning to deploy these capabilities, number one. And number two, a relatively small number of large organizations. Uh, as you know, I'm sure, Mark, there are, only, there are less than 300 businesses in the U.S. that have more than 5,000 employees. And it's these large organizations that have the skill and capability. But in order to have a meaningful economic impact, we need widespread deployment across all large businesses, medium businesses, and small businesses. So that's why the example I shared with you earlier around FreeWire, uh, deploying the benefits of artificial intelligence to franchisees who own 
filling stations and gas stations across the nation is a great example of the kind of diffusion that, that is necessary. And, and for the franchisees, a new business model. They're getting into a new business of uh, recharging electric vehicles and not just pumping gas and providing uh, convenience stores. Um, so it's a great example of the kind of diffusion that's necessary, number one, and number two, business model uh, transformation. The third is the transformation of how work gets done. Now, here's another place where there's, like with the technology and like with the early stages of business model transformation, we begin to see a little bit of optimism. Um, and in part, uh, it has been spurred on by the pandemic. Uh, we, have, we have now, uh, number one, uh, greater capabilities of folks to work from home. But more importantly, perhaps number two, we have 115 million workers in the U.S. who have quit their jobs uh, over the past two years. Is it that high? Is it really? Sure, high? you just I, you just I, I, add I, up uh, in the JOLTS data. Now, of course, some of them left the labor force. Um, some of them um, uh, maybe quit twice. Yeah. Um, right. and, but most of them found new jobs. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So whether it's 115 million or 75 million, we're talking about more than half the U.S. labor force has turned over in two years. What does that mean? That means that workers presumably have now uh, found new positions where they have uh, greater satisfaction, uh, improved compensation, perhaps uh, other benefit improvements to other benefits, maybe better work-life balance. So you would argue that they would be now more fully engaged and therefore there's some possibility to be more productive because, because these workers have um, moved into positions that they, um, that they have uh, greater satisfaction around um, and, and are more open to using the new tools and capabilities that are becoming available through the deployment of techno digital technology, including artificial intelligence. And then fourth, the fourth criteria is public policy. Mm. And in the US, we've seen, of course, as is well known, and you've been deeply involved in all of this, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, um, no guarantee that those, all of those projects will be successful and yield an economic and social rate of return necessary. But it's certainly characteristic of in, in periods of industrial revolution to have the public sector provide renewed infrastructure to facilitate both the transformation of how work is done and how business models uh, are deployed. So as, as these events occur in the years ahead, uh, we'll determine whether or not we see sustained improvements in growth and productivity. So let me ask, um... Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, has done some really good work here, and they uh, came out with a study, I don't know, a couple, three months ago. Yes, yep. Yeah. I'm sure you're aware of it. I'm, I'm well just aware. For the, just for the listener. And I may have I may characterize this wrong because it actually was written in a way that was a little odd. Uh, so I'm not sure I get it, got it exactly right. But it was a headliner was that AI 
ultimately, and ultimately wasn't clearly defined, but ultimately would lift underlying productivity growth in the United States by 1.5% per annum. That's on top of the existing productivity growth, which just so happens to be 1.5% per annum. So in, in my mind, that means you add the two together and you get 3% productivity growth. And that's very strong. Uh, you know, there's really only two other periods where the U.S. has experienced consistent 3% plus productivity growth. One was late 90s, early 2000s, when the internet was being fully adopted, uh, came onto the scene. And the other was in the 20s under electrification. uh, And uh, we saw a long period of strong productivity growth. That's just a number. My question to you is, is that in the ballpark? Does that sound right to you? I mean, how do you think about that? Well, in the context of, all, of those four factors and how they're yeah, playing sure. out, yeah. So, so, so their work has gotten a great deal of attention, um, and you know, I see their work. Seems like they send out uh, work four or five times a day. Uh, but this one, this good work, by the way. I just, I mean, it's, it's, ex- it's excellent. It's yeah, excellent. It's excellent. Yeah. And, and Jan and the team have done great work. Yeah. Um, what? Just to be precise, what they said was a 1.5 percentage point improvement in 10 years after, and here's the critical nuance, after widespread deployment. Yeah, after widespread deployment, yeah. Now, what does that mean? So I just went through the four criteria that are necessary to achieve widespread deployment. So if we can do all of the four uh, if we can go through the massive economic, social, and business transformation I just outlined and achieve widespread deployment, then in 10 years, which I would say takes us to something like 2040, um, we would we would over the course of the 2030s see a percentage point and a half improvement in productivity. Now, what about the percent and a half? You're right that in the in the 1920s which by the way was the comparable period of the second industrial revolution as we're in for the fourth industrial revolution there was significant improvement in productivity the comparable period in the third industrial revolution which was the 19 the late 1940s 1950s 60s through the early 1970s we didn't quite get to 3% but it was 2.5% uh, over mm-hmm. that time period um, I would, I if I would, had been writing it, I probably would not have said a percent and a half. I might have said a percent, and I can mm-hmm. see productivity growth going from what has been 1.4, 1.5% 1. up to 2.5%. Mm-hmm. Three percent seems very ambitious, but it's in the ballpark of what's yeah. possible, imaginable in, in 10 years after widespread deployment. Okay, okay. yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think the. Uh, the other thing that matters a lot, and I don't know if this fits into your four criteria, I'm sure it does, is new businesses form and they form around, they optimize around the new technology. And they, like right now, businesses like your business, like our business is aggressively trying to bring AI into our business practices. But, you know, that's a process and we have to figure that out and we got to move things around and people we don't have the right skill sets and we got to get the right skill. You know, there's yep. a lot of things going on to, to make that work. But when a new business is, when a new business forms, they don't have all that legacy stuff 
you know, the business model is a new business model and they can optimize around the AI. So, but that takes time, you know, that, that doesn't happen next year. That happens 10, 20 years from now. And that's kind of sort of what you're saying. Absolutely. I guess the the qualification I would add, and I go through this in a lot of detail in the book, um, John Haltewanger, who who you know, um, has been focused on the the new business formation uh, issue, where as a source of productivity growth, which, which is absolutely right. Um, and and you're right. Many businesses, many new businesses fail, but those who succeed can be highly productive and add to productivity. However, the 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 largest number of businesses are those who continue to exist. So so we need both the new businesses to be new and more productive and deploy new business models, but we need the existing businesses to give up the old ways and transform to the new ways. Now, in part, that's what that's what the pandemic did. Uh, in part, the pandemic uh, allowed us to uh, take a pause for obviously for for not good reason um and nobody has reached not nobody but very few businesses have returned to doing things the way they did it in 2019 and 2023 four years later we're seeing significant transformation and but it's often it's often characteristic of these industrial revolutions world war ii is a great example where businesses really ceased to function in the u.s uh, in in the way they had prior to the war and, and moved to a wartime footing. And in the 1950s, didn't go back to the way they were doing things in the 1930s, but deployed the new manufacturing and fossil fuel technology. Um, and that led to enormous growth. And there's a possibility of seeing a similar sequence of events in the current decades. You know, one thing that might, I'm just going to try out a theory on you, that might accelerate kind of the adoption of AI and have more significant productivity benefits more quickly is the surge in stock prices for, for companies that either are involved in the implementation of AI or those that are using AI. Because now the stock prices are right. If you can say AI, that I do AI, right. immediately you get a premium. I mean, sure. for those those big tech companies that are it actually facilitating AI, of course, their stock price has gone sky. NVIDIA has been parabolic, right? And Absolutely. Up. So you have this great incentive now, you know, like a, like a Moody's has a great incentive. You know, there's, it's good business, but, you know, it's also great for the stock price sure. to really invest and to, to adopt and try to figure this thing out. And so Moody's is aggressively investing in it. and of course we're kind of uniquely like Verisent situated here because we got a ton of data right, right. and it's hard That's to right. get to the data it's hard to understand the data it's hard to interpret the data and ai you layer that on top of this data that all we have and you go oh my gosh you know there's a lot of things that come out of this and so that might accelerate you know the the adoption the change in the business model that will lead to bigger productivity gains just, just a thought so maybe it's not 10 years down the road Maybe it is over the next five years. No, no, ab absolutely. We're going to see this process roll out over a period of five, six, seven, eight years if it's going to be successful. And by 2030, uh, we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be executing business processes in fundamentally different ways. Um, and it, and I would say it's not only uh, those publicly held firms who are who are either going to benefit or feel pressure 
from the equity markets, but also competitive pressures, even for those, even for privately held firms, are going to find that unless they can respond in a competitive fashion, um, they're going to they're going to be losing significant market share, and many will go away. Um, you know, Moody's is a great example of an organization with enormous amount of uh, text data. Uh, and from from the from the various firms that uh, have yeah. been assessed and evaluated, all of the SEC public publicly held documents, um, there's enormous opportunity for natural language processing in in uh, financial services applications, where all where all of the technology is being uh, very aggressively and rapidly uh, adopted and deployed. So, so it sounds like it feels like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to put them in your mouth and let's see if you, you know, if it tastes good or not. But so, it sounds like you view this more positively. Like this is, we need the productivity growth. This is going to help give us the productivity growth that we need. You don't view this as dystopic, wiping out a boatload of jobs that, and people are going to be on mass unemployment or significant increase in unemployment. Is do I have so, that right? You, you, you do have that right. Um, I, I certainly would not say that success is certain. It's not. There are probabilities, right? We're talking about the future, so the future is uncertain. But I would say certainly more likely than not, better than fifty percent. I would probably say there's a seventy percent chance, sixty to seventy percent chance that in the two decades ahead, we we the U.S. and in developed nations uh, across the the hemis northern hemisphere. Um, are certainly likely to uh, have the opportunity to experience significantly stronger growth than has been the case over the previous two or three decades. Now, what so, does that mean for the labor market? Yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. So there's been a great deal of work uh, among our colleagues in the profession um, identifying uh, occupations and tasks that can be performed by artificial intelligence. Um, what we have been able to show, again, in our work at the uh, MIT IBM lab, is that suitability for machine learning or the technical feasibility of machine learning does not mean it's economically viable. Um, computing is very, can be very costly. Training uh, AI models is very costly. Uh, being able to accumulate the, the needed data is costly. So we've done a great deal of work in computer vision. Um, be, and we're just beginning to do the work in the language models, but just take computer, computer vision. Uh, it turns out that um, only about 20% uh, of the tasks that are being, um, uh, that are suitable for computer vision capability are economically viable for computer vision capability because of the, because of the cost uh, and, and the business case that needs to be made. There are two problems. One is the fundamental economics, the, the, the business case is not there. And the second is making those business cases in the way that organizations behave uh, creates uh, a great deal of uncertainty and risk. CFOs are um, very reluctant to engage in these large projects because they really don't have the data uh, around what, number one, the probability of success is, and number two, uh, what the likely benefits will be. 
So there's a relatively small proportion uh, of these of these tasks that currently uh, are economically viable um, for uh, for the use of artificial intelligence. The twenty percent estimate, by the way, is roughly consistent with work that uh, McKinsey has recently mm-hmm. published. They have a number of twenty one percent. So we're technically we're at eight. We're at eighteen percent. They're at twenty one percent. So roughly plus or minus. They also say that over the course of a decade with the improvement of technology, that will increase to 29%. So we're talking about 20 or 30% of tasks that are suitable for artificial intelligence are economically viable for economic intelligence, uh, for, for artificial intelligence. Great. So I just want to tell you what we've done in our forecast, and I'd love to get your reaction to it. And we're, you know, a bit more cautious. Uh, but uh, just to provide context, between World War II, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the kind of in my, the, the heuristics that I have in my mind, between World War II and the financial crisis, uh, non-farm business productivity growth in the United States was about almost 2% per annum on the nose. Between the financial crisis and up until uh, the the pandemic, it was closer to one to one and a half percent, closer to one in the immediate wake of the of the financial crisis, closer to one and a half percent by the time the pandemic hit. Since the pandemic hit, it's been one and a half percent per annum. So we're kind of a half a point down from where we were, you know, uh, for much of the post World War II period. We are assuming that uh, productivity growth will accelerate for a number of reasons, but the primary reason is the increasing adoption and use of AI. And we get back to two percent essentially uh, over the course of the next five years. So by the second half of this decade, we'll be back to about two percent per annum productivity growth, kind of consistent with long run historical post World War II lows. What do you think? Is that a a reasonable forecast in your mind? It is reasonable. I, I, I expect you to say yes, but go ahead. I would I would <laughs> no. look at I look at it a little differently in okay. that. Okay. I define the period between 1945 and 1975 as what we call the deployment period of the third industrial revolution. Mm. That's when the manufacturing and fossil fuel technology was mature. It was widely adopted. Uh, and all of the kinds of uh, related change and transformation, think of the building of the, uh, the highway network across North America. Uh, think of the investment that was made in the in defense uh, in space expenditures uh, that supported all of the activity. Uh, the uh, a great, quite relevant uh, issue is around uh, the Treaty of Detroit. Uh, the Treaty of Detroit was when the UAW and the auto workers came to agreement in the early nineteen late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties, that allowed for a change in the work rules. And in turn, um, uh, cost of living increases, healthcare benefits, and pension benefits were created, which is why we have the system in the U.S. for private healthcare that we have today, mm. with the intervention of President Truman uh, at the time. That was the Treaty of Detroit, but mm. that those that structure then spread to many other industries: the steel industry, the plastics industry, the chemical industry. So it fundamentally changed how work was done. 
So we had this period of 30 years where we had about 2.5% productivity growth per year. Uh, the, tra- w- the technology then ran out of gas. We hit diminishing returns. And uh, growth, in fact, as you well know, was under such great pressure, we had a period of uh, quite high inflation uh, as a result, uh, which got out of control. Um, so it's reasonable to think that uh, if these uh, change transformation of this nature, which is quite significant, begins to occur, that we'll go through a period, as you point out, of going from a percent and a half productivity growth to 2% productivity growth, and potentially more than above greater than 2% productivity growth, if the if the uh, extent of transformation uh, is fully uh, realized. I love the optimism, but let's uh, end the conversation with uh, um, some darker thoughts. I mean, right. in, 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 when I say that, I have in my my mind's eye congressional testimony by the titans of the AI industry coming up to Capitol Hill and tell me if I'm wrong, but they were pretty dark in their perspectives on what AI might mean. You, you know, you hear words around existential, you know, humankind, there's a non-zero probability that this could eliminate humankind. I mean, come on. I mean, really dark stuff. What do you think about that conversation? And and maybe you can quickly then pivot to, okay, what do we need to do from a policy perspective to make sure that that does not happen? So, so as your question suggests, it is it, a little overstated. Um, okay, okay, <laughs> and you're a little understated, I would say. Yeah, yeah. the The comments, I mean, are, are probably a little yeah. overstated. But look, okay. there are risks. There clearly are risks. Um, you know, think about nuclear power. If, if, for example, today in the U.S. we had more widespread use of nuclear power, uh, we'd, be, we'd be consuming uh, significantly less fossil fuels. On the other hand, uh, there are all kinds of issues around safety uh, and the use of spent, spent fuel as well. But it's, been, but it's been regulated over the years. We have the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. We have, ex- we have expertise uh, in government agencies that helps to manage the risks uh, to to provide the benefits more broadly. Um, That appears to be what we need to do today. And there is legislation um, that Senator Graham and Senators Graham and Warren have proposed to address issues around privacy, uh, online behavior, security, et cetera, uh, which eventually will likely begin to appear. There are some significant issues uh, with uh, that the Supreme Court has recently um, raised around the major questions doctrine of how specific does the legislation have to be before an agency can take specific action. So there are a lot of issues to work out, um, but uh, an agency that provides uh, significant expertise to address these issues is likely to appear, um, and based on uh, experience over the past 50 or 60 years, there's a probability that it can be successful. Got it. Got it. I, I know, Martin, I, I, you've been very kind with your time, and, and I know we're running out of time, but I do want to quickly turn to Chris and uh, Marissa and uh, ask if uh, you, you obviously got a, a real uh, expert here in the AI world. Did I, did I miss any questions? Is, is there anything you, you were wondering about or, or perplexed about that you'd like to ask? 
Martin, maybe I'll go to you first, Marissa, because you looked, I can see the perplexed look on your I, face. My mind is just spinning. It's spinning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Martin, you think we're maybe what, 10 years out from widespread adoption across yeah. all different types of businesses? Yeah. Um, you know, these things are not necessarily that precise to put it, play, say 10, but you know, sure. anywhere between seven and 12, I guess there's a range. And that what? sounds pretty precise to me. Seven to twelve. <laughs> that sounds, gee whiz, that's pretty good. Okay. And what has to happen to get there? I mean, is it is it more around policy, or is it the development cost of the technology? So it's all of the above, and that's and that's what creates the uncertainty as to whether we can uh, realize the benefits uh, that we've seen in the past uh, in prior uh, industrial revolutions. Mm -hmm. Hey, Chris, any, anything on your? Uh, well, lot, your, lots on my mind. Lots this is of a, things, yeah. Uh, clearly a lot, many different directions to go here. I guess I, I have a question on this last point about regulation. I've been thinking this about this a bit and I find it difficult to actually believe we could we can regulate Right, you you may may make the analogy to nuclear power or other things that are in the physical world. Right, you do have some way to actually manage those, put in specific rules, per, you know, that uh, forbid transport of certain goods, for example. Sure. But here we're talking about lines of code, right? <laughs> right. And if um, if the if the U.S. puts up a barrier, well, you just move your code somewhere else. I. I, I struggle to see how government itself will be able to regulate this. It seems much more of a, a free market. Uh, yeah. So let me give you an example. Um, OpenAI uh, has been, who are the uh, the developers of ChatGPT, uh, has been involved now with uh, legal action that has been launched by Sarah Silverman. Uh, folks may know her as a, uh, a comedian. Uh, she's written a number of books. Uh, and she has uh, objected to the use of her books and other authors have joined her as data for large language models. Now, the large language models love books because it's highly curated data, right? An author and an editor, maybe multiple editors, have gone through the text. Every character and punctuation mark has been precisely placed. That's that's the gold standard data that large language models need. But it's all protected by copyright. Um, now, Google has a, uh, a large library of of books online that have that for whose copyright has expired. But that's an example of a place where the copyright law comes into play that guides the, the nature of the data that are available for these large language models. There are many other issues, but that's one example of where effective um, legislative activity around the, the copyright law comes into, comes into play to regulate activity. Okay. Thank you. I'm hopeful. You, you should know. You should know, Martin. Chris uh, always looks on the dark side. I have to say, you know, he's always. I watch a lot of. I watch a lot of sci-fi movies. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, so, Mark, one other, one other one other point I would mention uh, that we have not yeah, touched sure. on, and that you and I um, 
certainly are focused on is monetary policy. Uh-huh. Uh, what what does all this mean for monetary policy? If you're a a, a, a Fed board member or, or a regional bank president, uh, how should you be thinking about this? So I I assert that there are um, a couple of uh, concerns. One is it probably means higher interest rates for longer. There are there are lots of reasons to think that interest rates will be higher, having to do with debt, particularly public sector debt, private sector debt. But if all of the build out of this capability that I've been describing to you is to become real, there are enormous capital requirements. In the data center investments that are occurring currently are quite substantial. Part of my work with the BEA is to help them measure data center investment uh, more precisely. We don't do a good job of it today, but uh, it's, you know, it's really looking like it's quite substantial. Those are all capital requirements that are going to have to be uh, managed with higher interest rates, number one. Number two, probably means that as a percent of GDP, the Fed balance sheet is going to be somewhat larger. Um, you know, we talk about the Fed balance sheet getting smaller in dollar terms, um, and that may happen. But over time, it probably needs as a percent of GDP to be larger because of the capital requirements. And number three, it probably has implications both for our star, the the um, the target, the target uh, real rate of, of interest, uh, as well as the Phillips curve. Phillips curve probably will be much steeper as as markets as innovation occurs, markets become more competitive, uh, and prices are responding more rapidly uh, to changes uh, in uh, in cost. So there are some significant implications from a monetary policy point of view that. Um, I know from discussions, uh, the 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 folks around the board and support the board and and the and the FOMC are only beginning to to realize. Yeah, it's kind of uh, reminds me of the late 1990s, right when uh, mm-hmm. the internet was kind of coming on the scene. Productivity growth was really strong. Inflation was starting to be suboptimal. It had all kinds of it created all kinds of confusion, right. as I recall. Right before we could get our minds around it and before monetary policy could react. It feels like this might be the same thing. Exactly. I do want to thank you. And uh, Martin, one more time, what's the name of your book for folks out there? Breakthrough, A Growth Revolution. Growth Revolution. And uh, it sounds like a fantastic book. I'm going to go buy that uh, as soon as we get off uh, the podcast. Perfect. But thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, chat with you. Uh, learned a lot and uh, in a very digestible way. So I really do appreciate it. So, so well, thank so you. Ben, it's, it's been a lot of fun and I'm pleased to have been, uh, spend the time with you. And if, if you don't mind, we'll knock on your door in the future. Absolutely. Uh, Love to do you, it. You know, I, I just want to point out your, your, your forecast errors seem to be serially correlated. You know, everything takes longer than that. <laughs> so that probably means the productivity revolution is like next year, you know, so <laughs> just, just saying, just saying. <laughs> In a nice way, in a nice way. Uh, but to to our right. dear listeners, thank you so much, uh, and we will we'll talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye.